Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. In November 2017, a painting of Jesus by Leonardo da Vinci called Salvatore Mundi sold for record-breaking 450 million American dollars at Christie's Auction House in New York, more than double the previous record paid for a painting by Picasso in 2015. The top 10 most valuable paintings sold at auction houses include a Modigliani nude, a pair of portraits by Rembrandt, an abstract landscape by Willem de Kooning, and a paint-splattered Jackson Pollock, which cost between $170 million and $300 million each, all bought within the last 10 years. Dr. Nick Gordon joins us today to discuss why the art market is so attractive to investors, how this is affecting artists, and what an art flipper is. Nick is a cultural historian with a PhD in history from the University of Sydney. He's also a practicing painter. Welcome, Nick. Uh, lovely to have you back with us again. Lovely to be here, Joe. Just what drives art prices to such exorbitant levels? A whole range of factors. The, the art economy is a particularly complex one and one that is almost entirely unregulated. But one of the things that we've seen, particularly since the 1970s, are increasingly ridiculous prices being paid for single works of art. So the current record is the uh, the 450.3 million US dollars for a restored Leonardo. So there are a few things that are, are feeding into that. So in the case of the of that particular Leonardo, I think it's just somebody's desire to show off how much wealth they have. That happened to be bought by uh, Prince Bauder, who is a uh, a cadet me- uh, member of the cadet branch of the Saudi royal family. So it's often about showing off just how much cash you've got. And with all of the list of the top 10 most expensive artworks, they're kind of the usual suspects. So you've got a Saudi prince, you've got a couple of US hedge fund owners, you've got uh, a Chinese property tycoon, you've got a couple of Russians in there as well. So it's kind of the people who have the money and are part of the expense of buying the art or part of the desire to buy the art is just uh, to be able to show how much cash you can put down on the ground for a single object. So does it just affect certain pieces of art or does it inflate the pr- the prices generally? It can generally infl- inflate the prices. So, and the for the most expensive types of art, the ones that are consistently expensive, we're looking mostly at Western European art. We're looking mostly at either old masters, uh, kind of your Leonardo, your Raphael, your Rembrandt, or you're looking at modern masters, people like uh, Cezanne Modigliani. Uh, contemporary art prices tend to be much, much lower, but there's a much greater risk with contemporary art because you don't know how much it will be worth. Whereas if you're buying if you're buying a Raphael, you know that that's not going to devalue. It's always going to uh, slowly increase in value, so it's a good investment. Whereas for contemporary art, you can see prices bouncing around much, much more. So are auction houses involved in trying to get prices up? I mean, is everybody in the, the art market playing a part in this or not? Auction houses do have a, a hand to play in this, uh, but the auction houses, uh, once they've set their, their reserve, if they get above that, it's up to the people who are wanting to buy it to start competing with one another for it. One of the things that's changed uh, how prices work in auction houses, though, 
is again something that happened in the 1970s when Christie's stopped charging the commission onto the person who was selling the work and started passing the commission on to the person buying the work, uh, which allowed them to then uh, get greater access. So whenever there's an estate going, uh, that they can say, well, we can sell your estate for 1% commission or less than 1% commission because they'll be charging 25% to the buyer as their brokerage fee. Uh, so that by doing that, they are able to kind of keep the supply of art running in. They're able to kind of uh, get a larger supply of art from these estates going into the auction house. Uh, and then kind of the price then in- increases at the other end because they're also adding their commission onto that price. So if these um, masters and contemporary works are being sold to people like princes, whatever, then they're not seen by the public, obviously. They're, we're not then seeing them in museums and galleries. They become privately owned and the public don't see them. For the most part, yes. So there were a pair of Rembrandts uh, that were bought uh, a bit over a decade ago uh, for $180 million, but that were the money for that was uh, coughed up by both the Louvre and the Rijksmuseum uh, raised the funds to be able to buy it so that those works could remain uh, publicly accessible. Other works, like the very expensive Leonardo, uh, was uh, thought that it was going to be shown off in the new Louvre in Abu Dhabi, but it hasn't yet arrived there, and there's all sorts of speculation about where this work's been for the past three years. So that could be, uh, there's some speculation that it's on the the Crown Prince's $850 million super yacht in kind of uh, in the lounge room. Uh, whereas other people are saying, no, no, it's in a secret art storage facility in Switzerland. So there was an idea that that work would be seen, uh, but it hasn't happened yet. So when did, you you mentioned the 70s, but was this happening before or is it just a really recent phenomenon? The consistency of these prices is quite recent uh, and that's there, but there are historical precedents for it as well. So we know that, say, with the rise of an open art market and uh, the birth of modern capitalism, for example, in the Netherlands, you do start to see uh, kind of art bubbles forming, more or less at the same time that you see, uh, for example, uh, tulipomania, uh, kind of this desire to spend uh, the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of US dollars on a single tulip bulb just to see what happens when it opens up, if if it's going to be the most beautiful one or not. Uh, so it's a very similar, those who can go hand in hand. They're, they're both volatile and largely unregulated markets. So when they do kind of, you get that almost manic attitude towards wanting to acquire something and then wanting to outdo other people in what you've acquired. So with contemporary art, so new work being created, how uh, do people try and, I mean, do collectors try and increase the prices? Yes, but not necessarily in the same way that auction houses do because auction houses are effectively it's a secondary market. Uh, they don't really have any contact with uh, the production of art and kind of the, the original production and creation and the first sale of art. Most of that is handled by galleries. And while galleries do take a commission of sales, they do also tend to reinvest that into the development of an artist's profile. But if a gallery, say, represents 20 artists... It's probably only their their three leading artists who are making the bulk of their income that they're then using to develop the relationships to try and build the reputation as up of the other artists. To do that, they don't want to inflate the prices too much. They don't want to drive prices up to the point where the people interested in contemporary art won't buy it anymore. So they want to keep their prices uh, stable, but in a way that's good for them and the artist too. 
but some of the ways that they can improve the the price of an artist are quite uh, unexpected. So by getting artists to have a solo show in a public gallery, for example, lends a public authority. It, it legitimises that artist in the eyes of the public. It makes their name well-known. And once they become well-known like that, the price will start to go up because more people will start competing to own a work of that artist. So there was some interesting research done by Julia Halperin for the art newspaper, which showed there are five US galleries that uh, contribute 30% of all solo shows of contemporary art in the US's 68 major museums. Um, so they've got a, almost a stranglehold over if you're being promoted by one of those galleries, they will be able to develop your reputation and they will be able to improve the price of your art up through that means. So an artist represented by them has a huge advantage, presumably. Absolutely, yes. But the galleries themselves are only a very small part of the contemporary art market. Um, and since the 1980s, the, the art fair has been where more and more contemporary art is being sold. And that's partly because you bring all of the collectors from around the world to a single place. And in the case of something like Art Basel, you might have 300 galleries displaying their wares all in one place. So you can see a lot of art being sold in, say, three days uh, in one spot. Whereas if you have to travel, you've got to go from Berlin to London to New York, then over to Shanghai to Hong Kong and back in again, it's, uh, you're, uh, it's much harder to keep selling art in that way than it is to kind of bring the people and the art to one spot. So galleries are finding that they're having to transport art greater distances to get to where their, where their market is. So tell us what an art flipper is. An art flipper is something that's come about reasonably recently. So most people who buy art, uh, it's thought to, uh, to be about 90% of people buy art because they actually like the art. But then there's another, that other 10%, buying art purely for its investment value. They're buying it because they know that if they buy it cheap now, it will, its value will increase and they can flog it off and make a huge profit in a few years' time. And this is where the art flippers go in. The art flippers are coming in and they pick someone who's on the rise and they try and stay just far enough ahead of the ball to be able to buy them up cheap, uh, knowing that kind of other people are going to want to buy them in, in three years' time and they might be able to increase the value uh, fourfold in that period. So a wonderful example of one of these uh, was in the last global financial crisis where art was seen as a, a stable investment with kind of a, for things you people usually invest in uh, going south. So they started buying particular types of art, thinking this is, this is what these people are going to in, uh, transfer their investments into. And that worked for the first couple of years. But one guy in particular bought uh, a whole range of works for $100,000 each, uh, which were kind of very much of the moment. It's a particular style of art. It wasn't a particularly interesting style of art. It was produced for sale, more or less. Uh, and he bought them for $100,000 each, knowing that kind of if the, if the trend kept going, then in 12 months' time, he'd be selling them for half a million each. So he would have made a huge profit. However, then people got tired of that. Look at that type of art. They got tired of buying that type of art. People got very cynical with that style of art. And he ended up having bought all this stuff for $100,000 each and struggling to be able to sell it for $25,000 a piece. So he lost, he gambled millions on it and it just didn't pay off. The art flipper is somebody who's in there just in there purely for the money um, rather than trying to contribute something to the development of contemporary art. Sounds a bit like the tulip for someone. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so you mentioned the global financial crisis. 
What's happening in the coronavirus? I mean, is art holding its price? Yes. Uh, so, for them, generally, art is quite a stable investment uh, in, ter- in terms of its, its prices. At the moment, though, while art sales increased during the GFC, art sales during coronavirus are slowing. Uh, so, that's not that people aren't wanting to invest in it, but if you wanted to go and buy a work of art, you want to be able to see it. And if you can't get to the gallery, if you can't get to the fair, you can't get to the auction, then it decreases the the amount of art that will be will be sold. So the value of it is staying fairly stable. Um, it doesn't go off as long as you don't kind of throw it underwater, leave it in the sun, drive a bus over it or anything like that. It will be, uh, it will kind of, it won't deteriorate quickly. Um, it's just that the, it's it's much harder with coronavirus to be able to get people to see the art they're interested in buying. So with art prices going back to the masters or you know the really expensive paintings, with prices that high, does that mean that there's more likelihood of forgeries? Yes, um, absolutely. So if you can, and this is this is a, not a new phenomenon. If you're capable of forging art and you know that people are going to want to buy that particular artist, uh, then you've got a good chance of being able to pass something off as being a Modigliani or a De Chirico. So uh, Modigliani and De Chirico are the two most forged artists. Uh, So to try and counter that, there are foundations who have the archival material whose job it is is to help uh, help sellers, help dealers to be able to authenticate the works, to be able to demonstrate their provenance and to show that it's not a forgery. In some cases, the forgery can be easily spotted. So a bad forgery hasn't used the same materials or it's used materials that weren't invented until 50 years after the artist died, whereas the really good forgers will be able to, will be able to say, find canvas that was produced in the early 20th century. They'll find them the exact sort of materials that the artist used. They will have studied the artist's technique, uh, and the forgeries to the to the the naked eye are almost indistinguishable. But there are. It's surprising um, just how many forgeries are uh, in major collections around the world. Oh, how interesting! So going back to the Leonardo da Vinci that sold for four hundred and fifty million. I mean, there was some question about whether he'd painted it, wasn't there? Yes, and there are ongoing questions about it. So. It seems that there is, there are well, there are good arguments showing that it was one of his, uh, that he did paint it, and that's from looking at the the work itself and how it, how what survives of it, how it's been painted. But the difficult part with that is uh, it's called the Lost Leonardo because we know uh, it was in the collection of the Kings of France. We know that it was then in the collection of Charles the First of England. But all we have there aren't drawings of it. They're not copies of it. They're just a description of it. And there's a, a Leonardo uh, painting of this in the collection. But then the painting goes missing for 300 years and turns up in the early 20th century as part of some aristocrat's collection. And then it kind of comes out and, and because you can't establish how it got from Charles I to the beginning of the 20th century, it means you have to start looking at the, the work itself. You, can't, you have no documentation for it. And there's still ongoing argument about whether it was uh, really Leonardo or not, or whether it was one of his uh, one of his followers, probably uh, Luini. Because it was painted, had several layers. It had been painted over yes. a few times. It had, yes. So the, to try and find the the original layer of paint, they had to remove 
uh, 19th century paint and 18th century paint uh, to be able to find and to analyse what was underneath that. Uh, it wasn't really, though, until very recently uh, that it was thought to be a Leonardo at all. So it was thought to be Leonardesque. Uh, so the work was actually sold for £47 in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah, extraordinary. Uh, but not until the early, uh, the early 2000s where... Uh, a group of dealers got together and were starting to look more closely at it, and, that, and they paid to have it analysed. They had paid for the kind of the, the research, being able to look at those original paint layers and to try and tell whether or not it's Leonardo. But it's been very heavily restored. Uh, so a lot of what you see, if we're allowed to see it again, a lot of what you would see on it uh, isn't the paint that Leonardo put on it anyway. But that's that's quite common. So does it make it hard for museums? I know you say that uh, the two, the Rembrandt, the two portraits were bought by museums, but a lot of the time they obviously can't compete with this kind of money. So does that make this a lot harder for museums to be acquiring this sort of level of art? Uh, absolutely, yes. So uh, because museums don't have that level of uh, cash lying around the place for the most part, although museums do have quite extensive... Uh, resources that are given to them by philanthropists. Uh, that's not necessarily enough to go and spend, say, you know, two years' worth of private donations on a single painting. It would be very difficult to persuade uh, your backers that it was really worthwhile to, on, on a single painting. So instead, public galleries are often having to uh, find works that are cheaper, often by the same artists, but find works that don't have those price tags attached or they might work with people who, who have those works in private collections to have them given over or donated to the museum because they can't afford those prices at all. It's so interesting the way the prices change. You look at blue poles and how there was such controversy about buying that here. And then, you know, its price is just absolutely soared. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It turns out just as an investment, that was uh, a very canny one. That, yeah. Uh, a mere $4 million is a. Nothing compared to what it's worth now. Yeah. So I suppose it's a bit of a gamble because in many ways, how do you put a price on a piece of art? It is. One in one way, well, one way of looking at it is the kind of the price you put on it is what anyone will pay for it. People are buying something that is, uh, that though they could pick up and move the painting, they could pick up and move the sculpture. What they're actually buying in it isn't the material quality. It's those intangible things that are in the art. It's beauty or uh, kind of, the idea of being able to get close to one of the great geniuses of the past who created something that they're buying. On the other hand, there are some things that are quite predictable. What helps make art become more valuable and the the best thing that can happen is for the artist to die uh, because then that that starts to create scarcity. There's going to be no new works from them and that means that you can start uh, predicting how value will increase much more regularly. So if something extraordinary happened and the Louvre had to sell the Mona Lisa. <laughs> How much would you be looking at for that, do you think? Uh, wow. Um, I think the Mona Lisa would come with a price tag of several billion. It, it's the one of the most well-known paintings in the world. Uh, it's the painting that introduced the American public to Italian Renaissance art. It's the most photographed painting in the world. Uh, I think that to own that, if somebody had a spare few billion lying around the place, um, somebody would probably cough up uh, quite literally billions of US dollars for it. I don't, I'm not sure even what its what what its insurance tag is. It must be kind of a awful to be the Louvre and have have to try yes. and uh, 
account for or have to put a price on it simply for the sake of insurance. Yeah. I can't help but notice that the top 10 most valuable paintings are all done by men. <laughs> so what's the most expensive painting by a woman? It's a really good point. So the most expensive painting by a woman is not even in the top 20 record prices. Uh, it too was sold in the past 10 years and it's a Georgia O'Keeffe which sold for a measly 44 million US dollars. But it's part of a, a much, much bigger problem, especially within the sort of art that goes through auction houses. Uh, so the art that goes through auction houses tends to be at the uh, the conservative end of the mar- art market and it's much more likely to be bought for investment art rather than what's going through the galleries, what's very, very contemporary but economically very risky. So what goes through uh, an auction house, or when you look at auction house records, uh, 90% of all art that goes through auction houses is uh, produced by men. And in terms of the value of the sales of that, 93% of sales going through auction houses are also uh, art made by men. So women are very, very poorly represented in the auction houses. Whether that's the auction houses creating that or whether it's just reflecting the economic interests, the conservative economic interests of the people buying through auction houses rather than through galleries and fairs is something to look at in more detail perhaps another time. Thanks for coming in and talking to us today, Nick. Thank you. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller, a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to catch up with them in person at a public event around Australia, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Jo Litson. Thank you for your company.